This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Ah, East Alaska, the land of legal weed, no-gun laws, gambling, and seafood. It's Maine. I'm talking about Maine. I'm calling it East Alaska because reasons. Stop asking questions. This place is the East Coast's equivalent to the last frontier. There's tons of forest and wildlife, fresh seafood, and a handful of cases of criminally-minded men hiding out in the woods. It's the American dream for those of us who want the fuck away from society, while also having the few comforts of a society. I've said too much. Forget me singing their praises, Maine probably sucks and I'd never go there, ever. I do hate seafood, so I guess that's enough to keep me off the coastline. Maine and Alaska are very similar in other ways, including their history with capital punishment. Maine hasn't executed anyone since 1887. Out of a grand total of 21 people who are recorded to have been put to death in this state, about half were after they gained statehood. Most of these people were white men, with a few exceptions. Their crimes vary significantly, probably due to the time period. This episode is going to be full of historical shenanigans. So grab some melted butter and a musket. We're headed to the Pine Tree State. Is that really what it is? God damn, I've apparently been throwing darts at the wrong side of the map. Sounds like heaven to me. If you've been here before and consumed any other last meals, you'll know that we are an equal opportunity podcast. We don't discriminate based on race, sex, religion, or even age. The death penalty is for everyone. I know the colonies didn't discriminate either, but it surprised me to learn that the first person ever executed in Maine was a woman. Mrs. Cornish, as she's known, moved to Maine with her husband in 1636 after getting married in Massachusetts. She was a woman of loose habits who had married a very hardworking man. A few years later, in 1644, the body of Richard Cornish was found in a river. He'd been impaled and beaten in the head. His body was then placed into his canoe, which was weighed down with rocks. As it always goes, the people closest to the victim were the first to be questioned. Mrs. Cornish denied any involvement, but a motive soon came to the surface. She'd been having a number of affairs. One of these men was named as Edward Johnson. Why she didn't just lie to the police is a mystery to me, but I don't know, things were different back then. It was also thought that maybe Richard had been murdered by Native Americans, or as they were known back then, Indians. Technology was at its peak in the 1600s. We all know that. Forget about the fancy DNA testing, fingerprinting, and other forensic science we have today. Back then, their methods were foolproof. To determine the guilt of their suspects, they engaged in a practice called trial by touch. Both suspects, Edward Johnson and Mrs. Cornish, were told to touch the deceased body. If the body was to bleed at all during this, the suspect would be considered guilty of the murder. This test was administered and Richard's body oozed blood. 
I don't know what else they were expecting. The decomp on this guy had to be insane. This evidence was used to convict both suspects. Airtight evidence. No idea why we don't use that today. A man named Daniel Allen Hearn wrote a book that I might have to purchase eventually called Legal Executions in New England, 1623 to 1960. About this case, he writes, Although the man's skull had been crushed as if by a war club, no one could imagine an Indian being so wasteful as to purposefully sink a good canoe. Such a craft would have been desirable plunder to an Indian. Mrs. Cornish was executed by hanging on a December day in 1645. She maintained her innocence until the time of her death. I don't know how big she was, but there's a part of me that thinks she either had help or someone else did this crime. I'm pretty beefy, like there's a six pack inside the keg, but I know for sure I couldn't lift my husband, especially dead weight. Edward Johnson was acquitted of murder later on. Maybe Mrs. Cornish enlisted another of her boyfriends to help take out her husband. As you probably assumed, there is no information on the last words or last meal of Mrs. Cornish. Spoiled, unrefrigerated meat and dense bread, more than likely. Smutty Nose Island. Yep, that's the actual name of it. I'm not just making shit up because 1800s New England. Is off the southern tip of Maine now connected to a New Hampshire island. This place is known for a heinous crime committed in 1873. On March 6, 1873, three Norwegian immigrant women were staying at the only occupied house on the island. They were, bear with me, I suck at Scandinavian languages, Maren Hantveit, her sister Karen Christensen, and their brother's wife, Anette Christensen. You'd think I'd be better at pronouncing these considering I am more than 50% Scandinavian, but whatever. <laughs> Marin and her husband John owned the house. Just a quick side note here. There's an island between Russia and Alaska. I think it's called Diomede. That is my dream place of residence. If I win the lottery, I'd buy that motherfucker and never have to deal with another human again. It's the dream. But back to this weird-ass island off the coast of East Alaska. Just after 1 a.m. that morning, an intruder broke into the house. This was back before ring doorbells and security lights. I'm not even sure locks were a thing at this point. Housebreaking wasn't difficult. Karen was beaten and strangled to death. Anete was bludgeoned to death with an axe that belonged to the homeowners. Somehow, Marin escaped out a window and hid among some rocks until sunrise when she made her way over a wall and signaled a neighboring island for help. Marin was able to identify the attacker as Louis Wagner, who was a German-born fisherman. He'd worked with Marin's husband John on a fishing boat and had even stayed with them for a time. Obviously, there are no real smoking guns here. Nothing that can be proven without a doubt. No security cameras, no DNA, not even fingerprints. So how does one go about convicting a man for a crime without repeating the Salem Witch Trials? 
Well, there was a mountain of circumstantial evidence to go along with Marin's eyewitness testimony. Wagner's boots were a match to the bloody prints found in the house. A bloody shirt was found in the outhouse of the boarding house he was staying in. I don't know why they'd think that's evidence. I had bloody shirts in my outhouse all the time. The landlady, Mrs. Johnson, and her daughter had both seen Wagner carry a bundle of something out to the outhouse as well. Mrs. Johnson also claimed that the bloody shirt they recovered was one she'd washed and pressed for Wagner many times before. In addition to this, she claimed that Wagner hadn't come home until 7 a.m. that morning. Another man had been there sleeping on the couch, which was where Wagner claimed he'd been. Wagner couldn't pay his rent, but managed to afford some new clothes. The $15 he used to pay for them was coincidentally the same amount missing from the house on Smutty Nose Island. Coins found in his pocket when he was arrested matched some coins Marin testified she had given to her sister. This is all pretty shaky evidence, like it can be explained away. It's a bit more suspicious when you keep adding shit on top of it, but it's not impossible. Marin wasn't the only eyewitness, though. Others had seen Wagner rowing a wooden boat several hours after the murders. A similar-looking boat was later found on shore where he'd been seen, and its thull pins were worn down despite being recently replaced. It looked as though the boat had been rowed for hours. I don't know anything about the mechanics of boats, but it, apparently it's something to do with the oars in this case. The closest thing we have to a smoking gun in this case, in my opinion, is Louis Wagner's own words. The afternoon before the murders, he'd been in Portsmouth and had come into contact with Marin's husband John, his brother Matthew, and Annette's husband Evan. Wagner had asked them repeatedly if they would be going home to Smutty Nose Island that night or if the women would be alone. He'd even told them that he'd come set traps on John's fishing boat that night, but never showed up. Wagner couldn't name the boat or the location of the pier where he was supposedly working that night. He couldn't name the saloon he went to after work, either. In today's time, that might not be enough for a conviction, but this is the late 1800s. Louis H. F. Wagner was executed by hanging on June 25, 1875. He tried to escape, but was unsuccessful. While awaiting his execution, he claimed that Marin was the actual killer and that her husband John had paid witnesses to frame him for the crime. To my surprise, some people actually believed him and proclaimed his innocence. There are a handful of books written about this case, as well as a song called The Ballad of Louis Wagner. The axe that Wagner allegedly used to kill Annette is on display at a museum in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Unfortunately, due to the time period, I can't find anything on his last words or his last meal. Probably not going to be a lot of that in this episode. I apologize. On December 26, 1711, on an island near Chatham, Massachusetts, is that right? Chatham? I don't speak New England, so I really don't know. Guess I better learn, though, if I want to gamble, smoke weed, and shoot guns. Anyway, 
On this day, a woman named Sarah Jethro brought a baby girl named Patience into this world. When Patience was three, her mother died. Her father, a man by the name of John Samson, decided at this point to bind her as a servant to Paul Crow. This new family she was with wanted to raise her properly, teaching her how to read and encouraging her to follow Jesus. What did you expect? This is colonial New England. Patience was a rebel though. She was very wicked. The religion thing really wasn't for her and she disregarded a lot of what was taught to her. To mess with the family, she'd wait until they went to bed and let the cows out into the cornfield. As Patience got older, she began going out at night, keeping bad habits, and followed lewd practices. Sounds like a typical dumbass teenager to me. I was one of those once. When her term of service was up, Patience left the Crow family and began stealing to get by. She met and married an African-American servant about a year later. They lived happily ever after, right? Not exactly. Her husband's master, God, that's such a weird thing to say in this context, insisted that Patience also be bound to him as a servant for as long as the couple were alive. Shortly after the marriage began, Patience was drawn into the love of strong drink by some Indians. Their quote, not mine. She was an angry drunk and would often abuse her husband both physically and verbally. When she discovered she was pregnant, obviously by peeing on a rabbit or some shit, she had thoughts about killing her baby. Patience continued drinking throughout her pregnancy, and when her husband went on a whaling expedition, the woman ran away from her master, got blackout drunk, and committed adultery. To be young again, goddamn. That's a joke, calm down. I would never run away from my master or commit adultery. He doesn't listen to this, so he won't be here to appreciate or cringe at that one, but fuck it. I hope y'all laughed anyway. Patience came back from her escapades in time to give birth to her baby, who came out with two broken arms due to the trauma she had put it through during pregnancy. The baby, unfortunately, died a few weeks later. This is one of those cases where death may have been preferable to being raised by this psychopath, but what do I know? Patience continued being a violent drunk and beating up on her husband. This somehow led to another pregnancy. The thoughts of killing this baby came soon after she gave birth, but she wouldn't get the chance as it died a few months later. I'm an agnostic, but uh, I'm starting to think that maybe God kind of knew this bitch was not going to be a good mother. During an argument with her husband about a month later, Patience lied and told him that she had killed their last child. He immediately brought her before a justice to be charged for this crime. Judges are supposed to be level-headed and unbiased, and this one surprisingly was. He saw that Patience was completely hammered and decided to let her sober up before he made a judgment on her case. To make it easier to stick to her story, the woman got up the next morning and drank again. The judge told her once again to sober up and he'd make a decision later, but as you probably guessed, Patience came back later in the evening, having consumed even more rum. She maintained that she'd killed her baby and was finally sent to prison. Get this, Patience pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder. 
typical drunk bitch running their mouth until shit gets real. She went to trial but was ultimately acquitted due to the change in her story and the fact that there was no other real evidence against her. Well shit, this case makes the court system sound wonderful. Where I come from, all you need against you is an accusation and the state puts you in the gulag. Slava Ameriku. Once Patience was released, her husband gave permission for her to be bound to another master. I'm having a really hard time holding back the BDSM jokes. It's a fucking struggle. <laughs> she was given to a man called Captain Dimmick, who later sold her to Joseph Bailey of Casco Bay, Maine. While living in East Alaska, Patience kept up her alcoholism and lies. She tried claiming that she murdered yet another baby, but since no body could be found, nothing came of it. Joseph Bailey eventually got tired of dealing with her and sold her to someone else. This man's name isn't listed in the article I'm using for research, but it's clear that he did something to piss patients off pretty bad. The man and his wife were raising their grandson as their own child, and patients decided to kill the little boy. One day when the couple were out of the house, patients lured him out into the woods. Her plan was to beat him over the head with a stick, but when she lifted it up to strike him, she began to shake and lost her strength. Instead, she threw her stick into a well and asked the boy to get it for her. As he got to the edge, she pushed him in. He was held down with a long pole until he drowned. When Patience realized he was dead, she reached up to the sky and shouted, Now I am guilty of murder indeed, though formerly I accused myself falsely, yet now God has left me. Being the decent woman that she was, she left the boy in the water and walked two miles to a neighbor's house to tell them what she'd done. Patience was sent to prison in York and had to wait for the Supreme Court to hear her case. During this time, she was often seen crying and shrieking, sometimes calling out to God. Like, she'd completely lost her mind. A sudden change came over her, though. One morning, she woke up with a clear mind and decided that it was okay that she was going to hell, because she could now put her faith in Jesus. Patience Boston was executed by hanging on July 24, 1735. Leading up to her execution, she had a few bouts of panic and despair, but had ultimately accepted Jesus as her savior and found some comfort in that. Religious leaders claimed that she had definitely been converted. Her first family had tried their best to teach her religion, but it took her murdering a child for it to finally click. There is no information on her last words or last mail. I don't know about you, but I've had enough colonial America for one day. Maine hasn't put anyone down since the 1800s, but plenty of fucked up shit has happened up there. Sword and Scale has a couple episodes about Maine cases, so I will avoid those, but don't think this paradise is without its faults. On April 16, 2006, a 20-year-old man took the trash out. That's it. Story's over. Stephen Marshall was born in Fort Worth, Texas in August of 1985. His family moved to a town in Nova Scotia sometime after this. When Marshall was 11, his parents divorced and he moved to Idaho with his father, who served as the mayor of cul-de-sac for three years. This kid had some issues. 
I guess. He ended up catching an aggravated assault charge after he brought a rifle out to his yard to scare off some kids who were fighting. He was just 15 at the time. Marshall's father moved to Arizona and eventually to Maine, and it was at this time the boy decided to go back to Nova Scotia to be with his mother. The sex offender registry is a great tool. I've used it many times because I'm what you might call a paranoid patty. When we bought our house, I made sure I knew where the creeps lived and what they did. Thankfully, I live in a good neighborhood and don't really have to worry about that. People charged with sex crimes will often try to strike plea deals to avoid being put on the registry. Maybe because they're ashamed or maybe they're afraid of being retaliated against or maybe because they have intentions of doing nasty shit again and don't want it to be made difficult. I don't know. Stephen Marshall wasn't a paranoid patty. He was a vengeful Vincent or some shit. Don't laugh at me, I'm tired. He took down the names and information of 29 out of the 34 men on the main sex offender registry. Marshall was upset about his parents' divorce and maybe that contributed to what he went on to do. Sometime on April 16th, he borrowed his father's truck and took his 45 caliber handgun. This 20-year-old kid took it upon himself to find and shoot John Gray and William Elliott. The men didn't know each other and lived in different towns. Finding the crimes of these men is proving to be difficult, but one article I've found said that Elliot was convicted of having sex with his 16-year-old girlfriend when he was 19. Statutory rape? Let me tell you a little story about statutory rape. Yep, another story from my life. I know you're probably fucking tired of those. I was a stupid kid, and I had unsupervised access to the internet. I got myself into a lot of really sketchy situations. When I was 15, I was groomed by a 25-year-old man. Ironically enough, he was from Maine. Just put that together, what the fuck? This dude flew all the way from Maine to Utah to have sex with a 15-year-old. I could have got him for statutory rape easily. I knew his full name and where he lived, but I didn't because I was young and stupid. That is something a person should be put on the sex offender registry for. Banging your girlfriend that's a couple years younger than you shouldn't be a crime. An adult man having sex with a teenager definitely should. Gray's crime was a hell of a lot worse than being 19 and hooking up with a 16-year-old. He was convicted of sexually assaulting a child under 14. So I'm definitely on the fence here. Stephen Marshall should have done a little bit more digging before he started shooting first and asking questions later. Sex crimes against children should be punishable by death. You're not going to hear any argument against that from me. But to blindly go killing people on a list without knowing the context of the crime is just... no. Gray's wife woke up to the sound of dogs barking at 3am and saw a man in a dark jacket outside their house. Gray was sleeping on the couch, but was woken up by his wife. At this point, Marshall shot him through the window and killed him. Five hours later, Elliot was shot in the doorway to his trailer after he answered the door. His girlfriend managed to get the license plate of the truck the shooter was driving. It was registered to Marshall's father. The truck was later found at a bus station. Marshall boarded a bus headed to Boston. The cops were on him, though. 
A few minutes before the bus arrived in Boston, they pulled it over. They asked the driver to turn on the interior lights, and this is where shit went sideways. Stephen Marshall executed himself by gunshot on April 16, 2006. He was a vigilante, plain and simple. A lot of sources bash him for his hatred of pedophiles and love of guns. They seem to think he was just an angry incel, but I don't see it. Can't say I fully agree with what he did, but I understand why he did it. Sex offenders are the worst kind of criminals, and the justice system doesn't do enough to punish them. For legal reasons, I'm gonna say, I don't encourage vigilante justice. Don't go out killing people, even if they deserve it. Don't throw your life away to rectify someone else's mistakes. But for moral reasons, I'm also going to say, I understand why this happened. There is no information on Marshall's last words or last meal because he suicided, but I feel I should point out that this incredibly biased article I'm looking at says he had a section in his blog titled, How to Kill Yourself Like a Man. This dude clearly had some issues, but so did one of the men he killed. He took the trash out, no matter how you look at it. At midnight on November 1st, 1987, a man named Keith Garvin arrived at the U.S. Navy base in Oceana, Virginia. He wanted to call his wife Dawn to let her know that he'd arrived safely, but she wasn't answering the phone. Keith had just gotten back on base after spending some time with his wife at their home in White Marsh, Maryland. In today's time, someone not answering the phone means they're either asleep or they don't want to talk to you. But keep in mind, this was the 80s, and by now you should know that the 80s was a gross time to be alive. Keith was worried and called his father-in-law, asking him to go check on Don. When Frederick Romano arrived at his daughter's apartment, he noticed that the door was open slightly. All the lights were on and the TV was blaring. Something was clearly wrong. He went inside the apartment and found the lifeless body of his daughter on her bedroom floor. She was naked, bloody, and had a glass bottle inside her vagina. She'd been shot in the forehead. No signs of forced entry were found, but it was clear that there had been a struggle. Don's clothes had been literally ripped off of her. Her cause of death was found to be two gunshot wounds, one in the left eyebrow and one above her right ear. Don was young and had her whole life ahead of her. She'd planned on becoming an accountant. Less than two weeks later, another woman would be brutalized. Patricia Hurt had gone to return a camera to her brother-in-law when she disappeared. She was a single mom, working hard as an administrative assistant for Johns Hopkins Hospital. She'd also done volunteer work for the Special Olympics. Patricia was a kind soul. Her younger sister Phyllis called the police, who arrived at the home in White Marsh to find a group of people standing outside. One of these people, a woman named Danielle Jones, had also come to the house to check on her sister Patricia. The door was ajar when she arrived, and she noticed blood on the floor by the entrance. Patricia's body was later found in a ditch in White Marsh. She'd been physically assaulted and shot to death. A search warrant was obtained for the house Patricia had gone missing from, and a 25 caliber handgun was found. It was later determined to be the gun that killed Don Garvin. 
At around 1 p.m. on November 16th, the same day Patricia's body was found, her brother-in-law checked into the Coachman Motor Inn in Kittery, Maine. He told the general manager, Diana Ott, that he only wanted the room for one night. He paid for the room with a credit card. Must have had a lot on his mind, though, because he got the keys to the room and then left Diana holding his credit card. She called his room to let him know that he'd left the card at the front desk and could come get it whenever. Her shift ended at 2.30 p.m., and the man still hadn't come to get it. She was replaced by a woman named Lori Ward. Diana called the motel to check on her around 6 p.m., but Lori never answered the phone. After a few more attempts, Diana called the maintenance guy to have him check on Lori. He called her back about 10 minutes later and informed her that Lori had been found murdered. The police came to the motel and began knocking on every door to gather information. When they got to room 48, they received no answer. Someone was still checked into this room, so the silence was suspicious. The police entered and found a bottle of vodka, some orange juice, a pair of socks, small pieces of rope, a shirt with blood stains on it, and blood smears on the bathroom wall. Nothing else in the room indicated that someone was still staying there. The police went to Diana to ask her who had been staying in that room, and she told them it was a man by the name of Stephen Oaken, who drove a white Mustang with Maryland plates. After running the license plate, they realized that Oaken was wanted in connection with two murders in Maryland. They tracked him down to the Freeport Inn, which was located about an hour away from the Coachman Motor Inn. He was arrested and his belongings were seized. During the trial, it was determined that the shoes Oaken was wearing when he was arrested matched a piece of rubber found at Don Garvin's apartment. During the investigation, police also found a note in his house that he had written which suggested he'd planned his crimes. It contained a list of all kinds of items a normal person would need to go about their business. Gauze pads, chloroform, surgical gloves, a camera, sex toys, and reading glasses. I mean, who doesn't have all of that just laying around? A psychiatrist testified that Oaken had given him details about Don's murder. I'm gonna warn you now, it's pretty fucked up, but I think it's relevant to this case. According to what Oaken had told the doctor, he had approached Don outside her apartment and asked to use the phone. Once inside, he pulled a gun on her and told her to undress. He then told her to masturbate and then to perform oral sex on him. After this, he tried to rape her, tried a lot of different positions, and at one point sodomized her but this wasn't working for him. Just gonna take a wild guess here and say that it's probably because of the vodka. I can't say for sure whether he was drunk during Don's murder, but I do know from experience that too much Russian water can give you whiskey dick and make sex difficult. Because he couldn't get off, he went to the kitchen and got a bottle of hot sauce. He forced Don to masturbate with it while he watched. Still couldn't climax, so he got angry and shot her. This dude is pure fucking evil. Oaken was adopted as a newborn and raised in a Jewish family. He had a younger brother and sister. He had what most people would consider to be a good life, but started doing drugs in 1986. He started stealing prescription drugs from his dad's pharmacy to add on to his weed and cocaine habit. 
Okun did an interview with someone from the Baltimore Jewish Times in 2001 and said, I can't point to one thing that made this happen. I just didn't want to deal with everything. Well, you sick son of a bitch, I don't want to deal with the massive pile of shit that's on my plate either, and I'm not out raping and murdering innocent people. Take depression naps and cry like a normal person. Jesus Christ. Oaken was found guilty of first-degree murder in Lori Ward's case and sentenced to life without parole in Maine, but he still had two other murders to answer for. He pled guilty to the murder of his wife's sister, Patricia Hurt, and was given a life sentence. He was found guilty of Don Garvin's murder and landed himself a death sentence. A well-deserved one, if you ask me. Stephen Howard Oaken was executed by lethal injection on June 17, 2004. Maine gave him life without parole, but Maryland still had the death penalty at the time he was convicted. I thought about saving this case for next week's episode, but decided to include it because Maine doesn't have any cases I can find with last meals, and that's, well, it's in the name of the fucking podcast. We have to have at least one last meal per state or I'm not doing my job. Opponents of the death penalty protested outside the prison, as they often do, but the families of the victims were overjoyed with this outcome. Don's mother said during a press conference that, it has been a long 17-year roller coaster ride. My family has been put through hell in the past 17 years. After being asked if Oaken's death would bring any closure to the family, she said, The only problem is that Stephen Oaken died in peace. My daughter didn't have the luxury to die in peace the way he died tonight. Oaken didn't have any last words. His last meal was a chicken patty with potatoes and gravy green beans, marble cake, milk, and fruit punch, which, as I'm sure you probably guessed, was the same meal every other prisoner got that day. Maine may not have the death penalty anymore, but fucked up things still happen there. I decided to see what recent crimes I could find, and boy do I regret it most recent one I came across happened just a few months ago on July 7, 2023. A 61-year-old man named Andrew St. George was arrested at his home in Norway, Maine for the murder of his wife, Barbara. Her body was found in their driveway. She'd been stabbed and then run over by her husband's truck. When the cops arrested him, he had superficial wounds. Maybe this was a fight that went too far? Fucking sad either way. He's being held without bail, and who knows when he'll go to trial. Christmas time is supposed to be magical. For me, it's always hectic as fuck because my job gets absolutely slammed during December and I work six days a week, 12 hours a day. I'm not gonna say where I work, but based on that statement, I'm sure you have a pretty good idea. For three-year-old McKinsley Handrahan, Christmas of 2022 was anything but magical. McKinsley was pronounced dead on December 25, 2022. Her autopsy report stated that she had bruises on her face, right ear, back, head, and stomach. She had rug burn marks all over her face and was missing chunks of hair from her head. 
In addition to this, her stomach was full of blood. I've talked before about how my son is a ball of energy and always has little bumps and bruises on his legs from climbing all over everything. But this is something else entirely. This is obviously a case of abuse. The state of Maine already had suspicions about the treatment of this little girl. Back in October of 2022, her daycare had called the Department of Health and Human Services because McKinsley had scratches and bruises. McKinsley's mother, and I use that term lightly, and her mother's boyfriend said she'd been scratched by a cat and fell down the stairs. Just gonna throw this out there. My son has fallen down the stairs at least twice. I don't think he's ever gotten so much as a bruise from it. It scared the hell out of him, but never left a mark that I've seen. After McKinsley's death, Tyler Witham Jordan was arrested. His defense attorneys claim that this is just the state trying to fit square pegs into round holes and that there wasn't even probable cause in this case. Never mind this dude's DNA being on McKinsley's broken hairbrush and under her fingernails. It's alleged that he was going through opioid withdrawals at the time of McKinsley's death as well. Bail was set at 250000 cash, and his lawyers want to lower that. One of these days, and I know I say this pretty much every episode, I'll get to tell you my story and why cases like this piss me off as much as they do. An innocent little girl lost her life. The bitch who birthed her, covered for the monster who likely killed her, and defense attorneys are trying to use technicalities to defend him when there's clear evidence that he's responsible. Rest in peace, McKinsley. I hope your soul is somewhere far away from the cruelty of this world. That's it for the Pine Trees and Lobster State. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and leave a like or a rating or whatever the hell it is you can do to show your support. Share it on your internet. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'll be back next week with some cases from another East Coast state. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.